If somebody came to you and said that you had just a year to live, what would you do in the next year? Make it a little bit more urgent, perhaps. If someone came to you and said that you could die at any time, what kinds of things would suddenly become very important in your life? What kinds of things would you prioritize doing with the days that you had last? In other words, what are the kinds of things that you would put on your bucket list? Right? You know, the, the bucket list, the, the things that you want to get accomplished before you kick the bucket, right? Before the end of your life. I don't have, personally, a bucket list. I'm, I'm not really a goal-setting kind of person, not that driven so to speak. I don't make long-range plans. I have enough trouble dealing with like today. So like dealing with the rest of my life is a bit daunting to me. Um, But as I began to think about the idea of a bucket list, I began to realize that there are actually things in my life that I would like to accomplish before the end of my life. Things, places that I would like to go and see, experiences that I would like to have. I began to do a little research this week into how to put together a bucket list. Not because I plan to, but it was just curious to me. And I found a blogger who proposed a, a bunch of questions that we could begin to reflect on to, to help us discern the kinds of things that we would put on a bucket list. He asked questions like this. What would you do if you had unlimited time and money and resources? What would you immediately prioritize? What have you always wanted to do, but you've not done yet? Sort of a lifelong dream. What are some places that you want to visit? He asks, uh, what are your biggest goals and, and dreams? Or what do you want to see in person? Or what experiences do you still want to have or feel? Are there any special moments or events that you want to witness? What activities or skills do you want to learn or try out? What are the most important things you can ever do? There's a lot of questions here. What would you like to do or to say together with the other people in your life, with people you love? What do you want to achieve in different areas of life? Social, love, family, career, finance, health, or spiritual? And this is the last one. What do you need to do to lead a life of greatest meaning? What do you need to do to lead a life of greatest meaning? That's what the bucket list is all about, right? It's about clearing out the fog of your everyday life, getting, helping you see beyond the mundane and trivial things that we get caught up in every day and ask ourselves the question of what would it mean, what would I have to do in my life so that when I arrive at the end, I can look back and say I had lived the life of greatest meaning. No regrets. What would it mean spiritually to experience that? Wouldn't it be awesome? I thought about this question this week. Wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus constructed a bucket list? I mean, not not for Jesus. His bucket list is pretty short. Uh, Before I die, uh, tell people about the love of God, uh, show people the love of God, and um, die out of the love of God. Like, it's a pretty simple thing. I mean, what if Jesus had constructed a bucket list for you? 
What if Jesus had put together a list of things that you and I could do with our lives to make them the most meaningful lives that we could imagine? So we could die, arrive at the end with no regrets. What does it mean for Jesus for us to begin to live with the end in mind? That's what this whole series has been about. We've been slowly working our way through the last sermon, the last recorded sermon that Jesus ever preached in the gospel, you know, according to Matthew, life story of Jesus written by his friend Matthew. We've kind of been doing it chunk by chunk, pressing pause and talking about each section as we go. And we've discovered that for Jesus, this whole talk has been about living with the end in mind, right? Um, That Jesus is one day going to return in order to make right all of the things that sin has made wrong in our lives and in the world. And and the question that Jesus has been drilling into, what does it mean to live every moment of every day with that end goal, with that end perspective in mind? What does it mean to live towards the fact that Jesus is going to return? And he's talked about how we've been called to live faithfully to um, the mission that he's given us in life. He's, we've been called to fan into flame our love for God and our love for people. We've been called to invest everything that we have and everything we are in what Jesus is doing in the world. But what does that mean, you know, specifically? Well, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, in Matthew chapter 25, we're going to start in verse 31. So you have a Bible of some kind, you can um, go there. Matthew 25, verse 31. We look at the last part of Jesus' sermon, the grand finale where Jesus brings the whole thing to a conclusion. It says this in Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man, Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jesus kind of picks up this theme that has been a part of the whole series that we've explored, you know, but never really drilled into, which is this idea that when Jesus returns, he is going to judge all of humanity. And in every single path, the last kind of four passages in this, in this uh, sermon series, the judgment of God emerges as Jesus separates humanity into two groups. There are always two kinds of people, some who get it and some who don't. Some who will experience an eternity in the loving presence of God and some who won't. In this passage, they are described as the sheep and the goats. It's interesting, in the ancient world, um, shepherds used to herd sheep and goats together all the time. You would have kind of one enormous flock that would contain both sheep and goats. And it makes a lot of sense, because in a lot of ways, the animals are very similar. they roughly the same color, um, though the goats were a little darker in Palestine than the sheep. Um, roughly the same size, roughly the same shape. They have roughly the same food needs and water needs. They have a lot of the same purposes in the ancient world. They're used for milk and for food and for sacrifice. And you can shear them and use their wool for various things. But in the ancient world, as similar as they were, sheep and goats were actually two very different creatures when it came to the marketplace. Sheep were infinitely more valuable than goats. 
And mostly because when you shear a sheep, the wool is soft and you can weave fabrics that you can wear next to your skin and that can keep you warm. Whereas goats, when you shear a goat, uh, you, get a, you can weave a fabric that's very coarse and very tough, very uncomfortable. And you kind of use it to make tents and curtains and coverings, but not, not much else. And the passage says when Jesus returns, he's going to bring all of humanity before the throne of his kingdom in order to judge what they have done with their lives and with the world in his absence. And he's going to separate them into two groups. The sheep, he says, are going to be put on his right. Now, the right in the ancient world is always the place of honor. Right? We, and we, it's still, actually, we have these phrases in English. You talk about a, a right-hand man or a right-hand woman. Someone who is, shares your vision and values. Someone who shares your drive and your dreams and your goals. Somebody who is dependable and trustworthy to kind of be a second version of you. To, to do the work that you insist that they're going to do. Like, they're, that's your right-hand person. They're the most valuable people. Uh, we use the word right in the English language to mean things like good and proper and virtuous. The right side is the good side. In the ancient world, the, the left side, apologies to all you Southpaws out there, but uh, the, the word left in Latin is the word sinistra, sinister, evil. Something wrong with the left, right? I mean, even in English, if you can't dance, you have two left feet. They're both useless. Right? If you uh, make a comment that is meaningless and, and uh, out of context, it comes from left field. Right? Um, if you don't finish your dinner, you end up with leftovers. Like it's always bad. The, the, the left side is always, always bad. And it's true for the sheep and the goats when it says when Jesus comes and he divides humanity into two, there are going to be some who get put on his right as those who are being honored. And in verse uh, 30, verse 34, it says this. I lost track of where it was. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But to those on his left, verse 41, he'll say, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The division is going to happen and some people are going to be invited into an eternity lived in the loving presence of God where they will celebrate their love for God and God's love for them for all of eternity in a place that the church is often referred to as heaven. And there will be others who won't get to share that experience, but who will be separated from the presence of God for all of eternity. And the question that hangs over the text is, what is it that makes the difference? And this is what Jesus says in verse 35. He's just said, some of you are going to come and receive your inheritance. He says this, verse 35, for, uh, there's the reason, there's the rationale, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Jesus says this, this is how Jesus makes the determination of who it is that's going to spend eternity with God and who's going to spend eternity separated from God, who's going to miss out on the whole thing. It turns out it's not somebody who's prayed a salvation prayer at some point in their life. 
It's not somebody who goes to church every Sunday. It's not somebody who reads their Bible and prays every day. It's not somebody who's got all their theology sorted out. It's not somebody who's generally a good person. Jesus says the people who are get to spend an eternity with God, celebrating the love of God for them and their love for God, are the people who, when they saw him hungry and thirsty, they fed him. When they saw him naked, when they saw that he didn't have what he needed to face the extreme weather, they made sure that he had everything that he needed. When they saw that he was a stranger, that he was excluded because he wasn't a part of our tribe. He wasn't like us. He was being pushed away. We, they invited him in. They saw when he was sick, they nursed him to health. When he was in prison, they didn't give up on him. They continued to love and care for him. It's the loving acts of compassion for the deeply vulnerable people who have a desperate need, that for Jesus becomes the only criteria he uses to separate the sheep from the goats, from those who will experience the presence of God for eternity, from those who won't. Like, and you get, I mean, you understand, this isn't a checklist. You do these six exact things and, you know, you're good to go. He's describing what they all have in common is that there is a deeply vulnerable person who has a desperate need. And what Jesus is looking for is those who are willing in love to step in and to be the ones who meet the need. That's the only criteria in this passage that Jesus uses to distinguish the sheep from the goats, the right from the left, those who will spend eternity in the loving presence of God and those who won't. Now, I, I don't want you to misunderstand what Jesus is saying, or I don't want you to mishear what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying that you get into heaven based on your compassion resume. Right, that when he returns or when you arrive at the end of your life, you end up standing before the throne of God and you hand him your resume of all the stuff that you did and he quickly scans and he says, oh, that's very impressive. Welcome to the organization. Your desk is right over here. That's not how it works. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter two that we are saved not based on anything that we have done, but based on what God has done. It says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The Apostle Paul is clear, salvation is not something you can earn by doing. It's not something that you earn by all your good deeds. It is something that is given by God and received as a free gift. It's grace. It's a gift. It's not something you can do. It's something that only God can do for you. And he does it through Jesus Christ, through his death, his life and his death and his resurrection that breaks the power of sin over your past through forgiveness, over your present through transformation and over your future so that you spend an eternity in the presence of a loving God. It's something you receive by faith. By saying, you know what, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. And I believe that you did what you said you did. And I believe that I need you 
to forgive me for my past, for not being somebody who loves you with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind, all my strength. I need you to forgive me for not loving everybody else as much as you love yourself. And I don't want to be that person anymore. I need you to change me into the kind of person who resembles you in ever increasing ways. And the Bible says that when you receive the free gift of God by the, of salvation, by faith through what Jesus has done, God not only forgives you but transforms you and your life begins to change. The very next verse says this, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared for us in advance to do. Paul says when you put your faith in Christ, God goes to work in your life. You become kind of God's special reclamation project. God, one translation says you become God's masterpiece, God's work of art. God begins to sculpt and to shape your life so that you in ever increasing ways radiate the beauty of the life and love of God in the world. You weren't, Jesus didn't come and live and die and was raised just to forgive you for your past so that you can go to heaven. Jesus came and he lived and he died and he was raised so that you could be forgiven and transformed in the present and begin to do the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. Like when you see somebody who's hungry, giving them food. When you see somebody who's naked, giving them clothes. When you see somebody who's being excluded because they're not like us, they're not one of us, they're not from among us, you invite them into your home, into your heart, into your life. And you see the sick, you nurse them to health, you see the prisoner, when those who are suffering the stigma of having screwed up their lives in big ways, you care for them and commit yourself to them. Those are the criteria for the judgment. That is how God decides who gets to experience the loving presence of God for eternity and who's going to miss it based on how we respond to deeply vulnerable people in desperate need. The reason these become the criteria is because the person who has genuinely reached out in faith to Jesus, who lived and died and raised as the gift of God, the free gift of grace for them, those who have reached out in faith and received that for themselves are those whose lives are being inevitably transformed. And the evidence of the transformation is that they become those kinds of people. That if you've put your faith in Christ, this is your bucket list. Give food and drink to the poor. Give whatever they need to those who are going without. Give hospitality and warmth and welcome to those who are being excluded because they're different. Give care and loving concern for the sick and the imprisoned. Pour yourself out, meeting the desperate needs of deeply vulnerable people in the world. It's that kind of life and love of God flowing through you because of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit that becomes the evidence that you've genuinely made your life belong to Jesus. The amazing thing is to me is if you begin to think about it, 
this bucket list that Jesus has written for us isn't actually all that difficult. Right? Like Jesus didn't say, you know, I need, want you to commit your life to solving global hunger. Though if you have some ideas, we're all ears. But he says, I don't need you to solve global hunger. I need you, if you see somebody who's hungry, would you give them some food? I don't need you to figure out a way to get every family above the poverty line. But if you see people who are going without, would you make sure they have what they need? I don't need you to come up with a solution for world peace. But if you see people who are being marginalized and excluded, ignored and forgotten, would you invite them in, in love? I don't need you to heal the sick. I just need you to care for the sick. I don't need you to set the prisoner free. I just need you to know that you're not giving. I need them to know that you're not giving up on them. Now, that being said, I think the church should work hard towards solving systemic evil. We're actually going to talk about some of that next week in our starting point on race relations, about how systemic and institutional evil can uh, sweep us all up into lives and, and systems of sin that we didn't even realize. Like All those things are important, but Jesus says it begins with this, with these simple and small acts of compassion. They're small deeds done for small people. All the way through the gospel, Jesus has talked about the little ones. Don't get in the way of a little one coming to Jesus. And the example is always children, people who are small and insignificant enough to be ignored. In this passage, he talks with the ones who were smaller than the little ones. He talks about the least of the little ones, the ones who are so small and so insignificant that they don't even get seen. Jesus says, I need you to care about them and to commit your life to meeting the desperate needs of those deeply vulnerable people. That's what it looks like to let the life and love of God flow through you. It's funny, I, I played a lot of softball growing up. And uh, I was probably most of my career better at the plate than I was out in the field. And, and my coaches, many of whom go to Southridge, had a, a very simple philosophy for hitting, especially when somebody was struggling, especially when somebody was in a slump. It was four simple words to reshape how you think about the task of hitting, because hitting a baseball is a very complicated task in terms of physics. But there was a very simple approach, and some of the coaches, I think, are probably already mumbling it to themselves under their breath. The four words were this, see ball, hit ball. That was it. Is their way of saying, uncomplicate the task of getting a base hit in your mind. You're going up to the plate and you're thinking about too many things. You're thinking about your posture. You're thinking about your elbow. You're thinking about your front foot. You're thinking about the batter's box. You're thinking about the shift in the field. You're thinking about the pitcher. You're thinking about their pitches. You're thinking about what they're going to throw. You're thinking about the situation. You're thinking about the score. You're thinking about who's on base. You're thinking about what needs to get done in this at bat. You're thinking about your last at bat. You're thinking about your last game. You're thinking about your last month. You're thinking about your season average. You're thinking about all sorts of things. Stop thinking so hard. You're making this way more complicated than it needs to be. See ball, hit ball. Get up to the plate. And when the pitcher throws it, when the pitcher pitches the ball, I want you to see it. And I want you to hit it. 
And it seems to me that this is how Jesus is describing the life that he's inviting us into, what it looks like to live a life of faith in which the love of God flows through you because of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's see the need, meet the need, period. But first you gotta see the need. So we become experts at not seeing. We become experts at changing the channel when the child sponsorship commercial comes on. We become experts at averting our eyes when we see someone sitting on the sidewalk. We bump into somebody in the lobby and we say, hey, how's it going? And they say, oh, not that great. And we kind of keep our feet moving and say, well, I hope it gets better soon because we want to disentangle ourselves from the messy needs of, of people's lives. Jesus says, no, 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 stop, slow down, see See them. See them as people. See their humanity. See their story. Don't just see them, see their need. See their poverty. See them going without. See the sickness. See the prison that they find themselves trapped in. And don't just see the need, see the need beyond the need. The needs that we all share is the, on the virtue of our common humanity, their need for dignity, their need for self-worth, their need for understanding, their need for joy, their need for purpose, their need for hope. Learn to, to see people. And once you've seen them, and once you've seen the need, and once you've seen beyond the need, it's see the need, hit the need, meet the need. <laughs> Don't hit the people, see the people, meet the need. Start to like, pray. Name them before God, name their need before God. Enter into their story empathetically, allow their story to break your heart. Beg God that the kingdom would come in their lives. One step further, give. Right? If you have what they need and you can give it without jeopardizing your own situation, for Pete's sakes, give them what they need. More than that, acknowledge them. Don't just give them with this goods or services um, like they're some kind of charity case. Acknowledge them. Give them dignity. Give them worth, give them humanity, make eye contact, learn their name, hear their story. Let them be a person. One step further, give them solidarity. Enter into their story, be a part of their journey, walk with them, support them as they walk towards wholeness. One step deeper than that, give them friendship. Invite them into your story. Let them journey with you. Let them walk with you through your stuff. Let them be a support to you. See their gifts. See what they have to offer you. And let them be the gift of God to you in whatever it is you're going through. Jesus says, this is what it looks like. This is the bucket list of what it looks like to let the love of God through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, throw, flow through you and into the world. This is what it looks like to live towards the end.
Because this is what Jesus did. See, the great thing about this text, Jesus doesn't say to the sheep and to the goats, he doesn't say, hey, when you saw a hungry person, you fed them. When you saw a thirsty person, you gave them something to drink. He says, no, no, when you saw that I was hungry, you fed me. And the sheep, the righteous, it says here in verse 37, we're surprised at that. It says, when the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? Did They were as surprised as we would be if Jesus walked up to us and said, hey, it was nice to bump into you the other day and I appreciate the solid you did me. We'd be like, well, I don't even remember seeing you the other day. And in verse 40, it, Jesus says this, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus said, guess what? Every single time you did it for somebody else, you did it for me. Every time you either stoop down or step over the person lying on the sidewalk, that's Jesus who's lying there. Every time you either open the door to your life or slam it shut in somebody's face, that's Jesus on the other side of that door. Every time you open the door of your heart in, in empathy or slam it shut in apathy for somebody's sickness or somebody who's stuck in their life, that's Jesus that you're caring for or not. Every single person, deeply vulnerable person with a desperate need that you've ever met in your life is actually Jesus in disguise. See, when Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, and we're getting into the season, so I think I can talk about this. He was born as somebody who was hungry and thirsty. Somebody who was impoverished, who didn't have what he needed, somebody who was a stranger looking in who wasn't wanted in certain ways. Somebody who was born as a citizen in an oppressed state that was prisoners to the system of the Roman Empire weighing down upon them. Jesus was born as the very person that he's describing here. And when Jesus came to earth, he literally left behind the infinite power and privilege that was his as the God of the entire universe. And he entered into our humanity. But he didn't just enter into our humanity. He allowed our humanity to enter into him. He didn't just incorporate himself to us. He incorporated us to him and he made our humanity holy so that the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick and the imprisoned are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. They're the ones he has chosen to take up residence with, to identify with. Those are his family. And Jesus says, if you want to love me, let's love them. Which is something I get deeply as a dad, right? I have four precious little girls and they are me and I'm them. There is no difference or distance between us. And if you want to extravagantly and lavishly love me, extravagantly and lavishly love my children, but if you decide that you will not love my children, then you cannot love me. 
This is the whole thing. This is the whole ball game. Paul says at another time, the whole thing is faith expressing itself through love. This is what Jesus says. You put your faith in me and here's what it looks like to walk that out. <laughs> you see a need. You live a life of seeing a need and meeting a need. Recognizing that every person in need is actually Jesus in disguise. And so you choose to love them just like you love him. And you choose to love him by choosing to love them. In effect, all Jesus is saying is I want you to do for them what I've done for you. Because there was a day when you were the prisoner trapped by your sin. There was a day when you were the one who was sick and broken in your soul. There was a day when you were the stranger far from God and on the outside looking in. There was a day when you were the one who was naked and ashamed, vulnerable and exposed in who you'd been. There was a day where you were the one who was hungry and thirsty for rightness in your life and in the world. And Jesus is the one who came to give you the bread to eat and his blood to drink to fill the hunger and thirst in your life for him. The Bible says that on the night before he was arrested, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. And then he poured them a cup of wine and he said, everybody drink it. This is the beginning of a new relationship between us. One that is rooted in my love for you that gets lived out in your love for the world. And so as we gather now around the communion table, receive the bread and drink the juice as someone who is receiving the food and the drink that Christ has given to fill the hunger and the thirst in your soul, which is receive it as you are receiving Christ himself. And then... Let's go and be the loaf that is broken for others as we give them ourselves just as Christ has given himself to us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come now on the bread and on the juice and would you allow them to become as we receive them the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, the body and blood of Jesus. Let your Holy Spirit fall on our community so that as with this bread, as we leave here today, we would be distributed throughout the world and we could become the body and the blood of Christ for a hurting, helpless world in need. Would you allow our lives to become the bread broken just as you were in the love of God, 
so that everyone else can experience what we have found in you, the forgiving, transforming, healing love of God as you live it through us. We come now to receive. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.